0: Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. You might be surprised to learn that the prevalence of critical cardiac disease in infants is almost as high as the prevalence of infant sepsis. And if you're like me, you don't really feel quite as confident managing sick infants with critical heart disease as you do managing sepsis. Critical congenital heart defects have an incidence of about 2 in 1,000 live births with about half of those infants discharged home from hospital with a missed congenital heart lesion and about half of those kids will have critical lesions that end up in your ED. Unfortunately, these critical congenital heart defects are often missed in the ED and sometimes lead to death. For a bunch of different reasons, there's currently more children with congenital heart disease presenting to the ED than ever before, and these numbers will continue to grow in the future. Now, when I was in medical school, I vaguely remember learning the complex physiology and long lists of congenital heart diseases, which I've now all but forgotten. And since, I've figured out that while understanding the physiology is important, what we really want to know is what actions to take in the ED when we have a cyanotic or shocky baby in front of us in the resuscitation room. So with that goal in mind of learning a practical approach to congenital heart disease emergencies using the child's age, color, and a few simple tests, Dr. Strobel and Dr. Gibert will discuss some key actions, pearls, and pitfalls so that next time you're faced with that crashing baby in the resuscitation room, you'll know exactly what to do. Now, this podcast topic was chosen based on a Canada wide needs assessment by Trek, Translating Emergency Knowledge for Kids. And after a lengthy search for just the right expert to blow your mind with their knowledge, they found the brilliant Gary Joubert. So, <laughs> Dr. Joubert, can you tell us a little bit about your professional background?
1: Great. Thank you for such an, an interesting introduction. I'm an associate professor of pediatrics and medicine at the Shirley School of Medicine and Dentistry in London, Ontario at Western University. I've been practicing emergency medicine for some 28 years. And I actually have the interesting uh, aspect that I also did pediatric cardiology for about 14 years as a pediatric cardiologist. So I had a dual certification and dual role in my institution. Right
0: on. When I started researching this topic, I came across a fantastic review article from the Emergency Medicine Clinics of North America, whose lead author was kind enough to join us for this podcast, Dr. Ashley Strobel. Dr. Strobel, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background?
2: Thank you so much for having me, Anton. I'm an assistant professor of emergency medicine both at Hennepin County Medical Center and the University of Minnesota Masonic Children's Hospital here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm a recent transplant from Baltimore, Maryland, where I did the combined emergency medicine and pediatrics residency. I also considered fellowship in pediatric cardiology, but I thought I was probably done with my training.
1: <laughs> Good idea.
0: Overtrained, eh? Overworked and overtrained. All and right.
1: underpaid. <laughs> and underpaid, exactly.
0: So just to be clear, none of us on this podcast have any conflicts of interest to declare. And with that, we'll jump into our first case the blue baby a 3-day-old male who was delivered uneventfully following prolonged rupture of membranes comes into your resuscitation room via EMS with a sudden onset of respiratory distress for a few hours he has obvious central cyanosis intercostal indrawing is tachycardic at about 170 and has an oxygen saturation of 75% on a non rebreather the rectal temperature is 36.8 So, Dr. Joubert, can you start us off first? Before we get into the details of the case, what are the four big causes of cyanosis that we need to think about for every infant who presents to the ED
1: looking blue? The big four are really related, first to the heart, so congenital heart disease. Secondly, the second highest incidence of things we see is sepsis. So the infected infant. And again, you always have to be thinking about respiratory disorders, particularly in the child under a week of age, whether it's pneumonia or late presentation of RDS or some other type of form. And then following that is hematological disorders. And there are many of those. Most commonly, we see polycythemia, the baby who comes in blue, because they held the placenta up for an extremely long time, and they gave him a great autotransfusion. And then the second one, of course, are those unusual things like methemoglobinemia.
0: All righty. So congenital heart disease, infection, respiratory disorders, and hematological disorders like methemoglobinemia and polycythemia. Cool. Dr. Strobel, Can you remind our listeners what central cyanosis is in the first place, as opposed to peripheral cyanosis?
2: Sure, Anton. So it's extremely important to differentiate between peripheral cyanosis and central cyanosis. Central cyanosis, I like to look inside the mouth. I look kind of at those gum lines of infants and look for a purplish-blue color of the tongue and the mucous membranes. You can look at the lips as well, but that can often be confused with the circumoral cyanosis seen with peripheral. Uh, I like to think of peripheral as what you see in the delivery room uh, from medical school, just the hands and the feet that are blue.
1: And cyanosis is a a physiological definition. This goes back to medical school where you have five grams per deciliter of desaturated hemoglobin. So that's why polycythemic babies, for example, appear cyanose because, in fact, they have so much hemoglobin on board, it's easy to desaturate five grams with little effect on their oxygen carrying capacity.
0: All right, so let's go back to the case. You get a bit more history on the cyanotic three-day-old. He had good APGAR scores and was discharged doing well after 24 hours. Actually, he was doing well until parents noticed that he was having difficulty breathing a few hours prior, and then they called 911 when he was looking blue. There was no history of maternal or infant fever, no cough, choking, strider, altered level of awareness, or vomiting. Baby was feeding well, normal bowel movements, and normal urine. His chest was clear on exam, and his heart was going so fast that you couldn't really hear any murmurs. He was placed on a cardiac monitor, and the non-rebreather was continued. An IV was placed, and a bolus of 10 cc's per kilogram was given. A STAT portable chest x-ray shows no infiltrate or pulmonary edema, and the lung fields look a little bit more black than usual. And you're thinking, based on looking at this x-ray, this picture doesn't really fit any respiratory illness. His heart rate doesn't change much after the bolus, and an ABG shows a severe metabolic acidosis. You call for the airway equipment as the SAT isn't improving, and now you're really worried that this patient might arrest. You start to sweat because you don't know what's going on with this infant. You call pediatrics for help, but they're tied up in the delivery room dealing with a challenging meconium aspiration baby. So, Dr. Strobel, can you outline for our listeners your beautiful, simple, easy, learnable approach to neonatal cardiac emergencies?
2: First of all, I start with the age of the child. So typically, you'll think of a kid less than one month old as presenting with a possible ductal-dependent lesion. You could even narrow that down to about less than two weeks uh, if you really don't want to get fooled. And then you think of the kid who's a little bit older, one to six months of age, as having more of a mixing or shunting lesion. Then, very simply, and I'm a very simple person, I just go back to crayons from kindergarten and think of colors. So are they pink? And what does that mean as far as physiology? Are they blue? Or are they gray and really looking septic, essentially? And then from there, I do a few simple tests from a toolkit. I start with the hyperoxia test. I look at the upper and lower extremity blood pressures. I try to go on the right side. I think of preductal as right because it has an R in it. And then I also do a pre and a postductal oxygen saturation. I'll start these kids out like anyone else and consider a chest x ray in a child with respiratory distress, an EKG, and then go straight to our bedside echo and look and see what the heart is doing and if there are four chambers.
0: All right, great. So we're going to go through all of these things in detail. So starting with the age, if they're less than a month, I just want to get this straight, that's when we're thinking about a ductal-dependent lesion. And then more than a month, up to about six months, you're thinking about a mixed lesion. So really, it's those ones that are less than a month or two weeks where you want to be thinking about prostaglandins. The next part of this amazing, simple approach is the color of the baby, pink versus blue versus gray. So Dr. Strobel, could you just go through for us what you mean exactly by pink versus blue versus gray and how this helps us in our differential?
2: Absolutely. So when you have an undifferentiated infant coming in in respiratory distress, you don't know the name of the lesion, but you don't need to. And our three questions that we always ask are, do they need oxygen? Do they need IV fluids? Or do they need prostaglandins? So pink baby will have adequate pulmonary blood flow. Those are typically your shunting infants. A blue baby has inadequate pulmonary blood flow. So you think of a right sided obstructive lesion, likely ductal dependent. And then a gray baby. Those babies are sick. They look like they are in shock. They have circulatory collapse. They are not perfusing their systemic circulation. And most likely, they're not oxygenating well. They need a lot of support.
0: And those gray babies, those are the ones that tend to be the left obstructive ductal-dependent lesions, yeah?
2: Yes. These babies will benefit from prostaglandins, they'll probably benefit from fluids, and they'll probably benefit from oxygen. These are usually the left obstructive lesions, although there are other differentials to consider.
1: And the other thing to remember about gray, gray represents acidemia. So the baby is acidotic, and there are other causes besides congenital heart disease that cause acidosis. And I think, you know, clearly... One on your differential is always the heart. Number two, again, is infection because infection is one of those things that can lead to severe acidosis in the terminal stages of circulatory collapse. So again, gray is bad. If you want to be anything, you want to be pink. And if you got a second choice, go blue. And if you have a last and awful choice, be gray.
0: Okay, I got it. So now that we have an outline to our general approach, the age, color, and tests Let's go back to the case and get a bit more detail with regards to the history, physical, and workup. So we've got this cyanotic four-day-old who had an uneventful delivery following prolonged rupture of membranes in respiratory distress with a low O2 sat and a VBG showing metabolic acidosis. So Dr. Joubert, what else do we wanna know on the history in this child in general to help you distinguish between the four causes of cyanosis in the infant that we mentioned,
1: cardiac, respiratory, hemoglobinopathy and infection. The other components that you're going to really want to get from history if possible is some peri-delivery stuff. So for example, was there premature rupture of the membranes? Was there prolonged rupture of the membranes? Was mom group B strep positive? Did she have treatment at the time of her delivery? Those are all those things especially in a 3 or 4 day old that you need to ascertain to determine whether there's an infective etiology for this. In terms of your respiratory issues, you know, did the baby in fact have meconium at the time of delivery? You may not know about the meconium aspiration, meconium at the time of delivery. Was there prematurity of any sort? And, you know, we're talking less than 36 weeks gestational age for that particular avenue of approach. And then again, at the time of delivery, you know, we talk about the APGARs, and I always love when parents say, my child passed their first test. And I say, what was that? Oh, they had APGARs of seven and eight. They were so good. But, you know, you can look at sort of whether the baby was depressed, particularly CNS depression at the time of delivery, which may impact on their ability. Again, looking at respiratory factors. The hemoglobinopathies, often you go to family history and see whether or not there's anybody in the family who's had any issues associated with hemoglobinopathy. You may get some idea about the polycythemia. Again, if you have access to the delivery record in our chronic age, that tends to be a little more common. Going back to uh, the timing of issues, Babies who have ductal-dependent lesions don't really run into problems in general until their duct starts to close. So that's usually, you know, someplace after 24 hours and can be several weeks later. And I think that's why Ashley was so kind enough to tell you You have to think about it in a month of age as well, because some ducts just don't close at that age. And if the baby who has respiratory issues often starts the respiratory downturn shortly after birth. So they have and it continues to build and build and build and until they get to the very sick point that they are when we see them in the emergency department. And then I think that the other issues associated with congenital heart disease, you have to remember, is there a strong family history of congenital heart disease? Because we do know that many of the congenital heart diseases have an inherited component. And if there's one member of the family that has congenital heart disease, there's a high probability... Up to 20%, then point of fact, they may have another child with congenital heart disease.
0: All right. So just a review there, you want to look at the respiratory risk factors, which include a history of meconium, prematurity, CNS depression. You want to look at cardiac risk factors, like if there's any previous children with congenital heart disease or poor weight gain. You want to look at the timing because the respiratory kids tend to start getting sick soon after birth and then gradually get worse, whereas cardiac kids, it's really dependent on that duct. And when that closes, that's when they run into trouble. The one time I have seen a case actually of a kid who came in with central cyanosis was methemoglobinemia. What's the kind of key historical clue with methemoglobinemia, with, which granted is very rare, but it's one of those things that you can pick up just with one sort of simple historical question. Right.
1: You want to look at whether they've been exposed to any medications that can precipitate hemoglobinemia, lidocaine or the benzenes and oral gels or soothing gels, those kind of compounds. Mothballs is another one. So those are the things you have to be thinking about.
0: Yeah. All right. So that's the history. So next is the physical exam. Dr. Joubert, what pearls can you tell our listeners when it comes to the physical exam to help you figure out if the cyanotic child has a respiratory or a cardiac problem or hemoglobinopathy for that matter. I mean, this is, you know, you have this blue baby in front of you, uh, you're not sure whether it's respiratory or cardiac. That kind of seems to be one of the key things to try and figure out. What do you look for on physical?
1: Well, I think the first point is let's get rid of the hemoglobinopathies because in general, they tend not to have a lot of respiratory distress to no respiratory distress. So, you know, you're looking at the baby, they're breathing comfortably, but blue. Then you say, you know, this may be a hemoglobinopathy. And my first course will be not prostaglandins but methylene blue. The babies who have respiratory distress, cardiac versus respiratory, it's a little piece of history. So when you're looking at them on physical examination, you want to see how they're working. Kids that have respiratory distress in this age group, really from a pulmonary cause, tend to have a lot of different work of breathing. The work of breathing, and we used to use the term for cardiac, more silent tachypnea versus struggling tachypnea. So the kid who has cardiac disease is breathing quickly, but they're not struggling as much as the kid who has true respiratory because it's really related to, again, going back to physiology, related to that alteration of lung mechanics. So the lung mechanics, so when you got stiff lungs or you got lungs that have been altered in their mechanics, that's when you have to increase your work of breathing. And many of these babies, obviously, with cardiac disease, have inadequate pulmonary flow as part of it. So their mechanics are a little different. They're breathing quickly to try to increase their minute of ventilation, Right? In order for them to oxygenate themselves, but they can't because there's only 21% oxygen in the air. So we can't do much better than that.
0: Got it. So, and I guess part of that is also the metabolic acidosis, because they're trying to breathe off that CO2. You know, in adults, sometimes we see, we see patients who are tachypneic, but same thing, they don't have work of breathing. And you're thinking, well, this doesn't really sound like a respiratory problem. And one of the things we
1: need to think about is just that they have a severe acidosis from any cause. Yeah. So the tachypnea is really related to, and that's why I use the word silent tachypnea, really related to their acidosis and their attempt to reduce that by becoming alkalotic by respiration.
0: Got it. All right. So that's a great pearl. Now, what else on physical exam? I know there's the... Brachial femoral pulse differential and the blood pressure differential, right. and all of these differentials to help you narrow down to that cardiac cause. Right. In practical terms, when you're in that resuscitation room, what order do you do them in? How do you do them? How important are they?
1: So, I think the first thing I do is when I see the child is obviously the gestalt look. How do they look? How is their breathing pattern? quick auscultation. Then I feel femoral pulses. I think that, you know, as I say to every resident, you feel femoral pulses to the patient's 21 years of age. And we can talk about the coarc I discovered at 16 once because they had no femoral pulses, right? So they do get missed in life. But you feel the femoral pulses because if you can't feel femoral pulses, there's one of two reasons. You either don't have a blood pressure or you've got obstruction someplace, right? And they may be both from congenital heart disease or some other cause. Then you look for a femoral radial delay. Sometimes in small babies, the radial pulse is hard to find, so go for the brachial pulse. Now, when
0: you say femoral radial delay, that sounds like one of those things that I probably learned at some point where, like many physical exam maneuvers, have unfortunately gone by the wayside in terms of what I actually do in the emergency department. Just, Can you describe for us the femoral brachial delay and what kind of delay you're trying to feel and how you actually do it. Okay.
1: And again, it's sometimes difficult in a child who's tachycardic at 170 because the pulses just seem to run into each other. But in reality, you put one hand on the femoral artery and then you put your other hand at the radius. The distance between the heart and the radius and the femoral artery are roughly equivalent in terms of transit time. They should arrive simultaneously. If in fact they don't, then there's something wrong.
0: So that's the brachial femoral pulse delay, that brings up the blood pressure differential, the right versus left or lower extremity versus upper extremity. Can you explain to us how we do that?
1: Sure. So again, when we get a child in extremis or a child who we suspect congenital heart disease, and we ask for four limb blood pressures, but the ones you're most interested are the preductal blood pressure, which is in the right arm, provided there isn't situs inversus, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> Not the complicated. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> but in the right arm, and then you want one in the lower extremities. Okay? Either the right leg or the left leg. And normally, the pressure in the lower extremities is slightly higher than the upper extremities. But if it's lower, then you have to be thinking of an obstructive process going to that lower extremity. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. And we look for a 10-millimeter difference as something significant. And anything above 10 millimeters, you go, hmm, this isn't good. The reality is again of course you have to always take things in clinical context and a really sick baby you might be struggling to find any blood pressure. So that may be a deterrent from that particular thing. So you got to just remember that. So, you know, don't act if you can't get a good pressure in the upper arm, don't anticipate there's going to be a good pressure in the lower arm.
0: What about the pulse oximetry differential? Dr. Strobel, how do you figure that one, the pulse oximetry differential that's greater than 3%? or less than 94% in the lower extremity, or less than 90% in any extremity. I think that's kind of like the rule. I'll I'll repeat that again for the listeners because that's hard to remember. And then we'll go on to how you actually do it. So the pulse proximity differential of greater than 3% or less than 94% in the lower extremity or less than 90% in any extremity.
2: Well, this is a very simple test provided that you can get the pulse ox probe to stick and put it in the right spot, but really it's a right hand you can use, pulse ox, and then a right foot, and you look at the differential and what the pulse ox shows. This is actually so simple that it's now become part of the newborn screen in most hospitals upon newborn nursery discharge, and the same criteria will apply when you're seeing this child in the ED. So we're really looking for a difference, a difference of greater than 3% between the right upper and the right lower extremity pulse ox, less than 94% in the lower extremities would be significant. And less than 90% in any extremity really should push you towards looking for the etiology of that.
0: So we've got these three really cool, simple tests that we can do at the bedside in terms of the kitty with congestive heart failure. I've always known to check for hepatomegaly, but Dr. Joubert, can you give us some tips and tricks about how best and easiest to check for
1: hepatomegaly in an infant? All right, so uh, again, you know, kids are different than adults because in our adult people, when they get congestive heart failure, they get that elevated JVP, they get peripheral edema, They have tachypnea, they have, you know, craps in their lower lung bases. And of course, when you do a chest x-ray, you have those lovely curly B lines, right? But unfortunately, children don't do that. So the main indicators, aside from some feeding issues, which we can talk about a little later, is really hepatomegaly associated with tachypnea. And hepatomegaly, so the easiest way to do it, I always start iliac crest, just gently moving up very, very slowly. When you hit that liver edge, normally it should be less than two centimeters below right right costal margin. As soon as that liver edge is greater than that, you've got a problem. And especially if it's a firm, firm liver edge. The other way you can do it is, if you remember your old clinical examinations, which I've seen very few modern medical students do, is percussion. And you can percuss out starting at the upper chest, at the nipple line, moving down. You should hit it about, you know, the sixth rib. Move down gently and you can get an estimation of size. And again, it should be well under eight centimeters. So if it's greater than that, you have a problem. No, I love it. It's totally old school. It's yeah, good. I'm an old school guy. What can you say? <laughs> you know,
2: when these kiddos are in distress, they're flexing their abdominal muscles. They really don't want you to be palpating. And so percussion is actually very useful. And it has given me where the liver edge is multiple times in these little kiddos who actually have some pretty good abdominal musculature. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Great pearl. So percuss the belly to look for hepatomegaly. Love it. All right, so we've gone through our age and color steps to our approach and some of the important historical and physical exam pearls to help distinguish the cause of cyanosis. Now let's move on to some of the other tests. Let's start with the, the hyperoxia test. Can you explain to our listeners how to do the hyperoxia test, and how it can help us manage these sick babies.
2: When you're in the emergency department, the hyperoxia test is your best friend when you're trying to decide respiratory, like is this an RSV, or cardiac. So the hyperoxia test initially described used ABGs looking at the PAO2. If we can get an ABG in this kiddo, we're going to have a lot of blood to be able to send for all the other etiologies besides cardiac. It's difficult to get an EBG in the emergency department on one of these kiddos, especially if you don't have a lot of experience doing it. So the much simpler way to do it is to put a pulse ox on the child, as you were going to do anyway for the previous pulse ox differentials, and because you want to know how blue is that baby with the pulse ox. So putting a pulse ox on and then applying some non-rebreather O2 to give 100%, roughly, FiO2 for about... Five to ten minutes usually does the trick, and you can see if the pulse ox improves. If it improves, it's probably respiratory as an etiology. If it doesn't improve, we need to look further.
0: And you start sweating. Just a little. Or I do. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I've also read that giving quote, 100% oxygen to an infant with congenital heart disease can actually be a problem. Dr. Joubert, how, how is that that it could actually be a problem giving them lots of oxygen?
1: So oxygen, as we all know, is one of the most potent vasodilators, particularly for the pulmonary bed. So by vasodilating the pulmonary bed, you can actually make certain situations worse where you already have an increase in pulmonary blood flow and end up flooding the lungs. So in an obstructive lesion, for example, left-sided obstructive lesion, this can actually make the child sicker. And so, you know, a lot of discussion goes into the hypoplastic left heart syndrome, for example. How much oxygen do you give them after they've been diagnosed, especially the ones you know ahead of time? Do you put them on 100% immediately or do you keep them so that they have some degree of pulmonary reactivity or vasoconstriction that will allow for better overall global saturation of their body? So.
0: Suffice to say then that if you do the hyperoxia test and there's no improvement in the pulse ox with as close to 100% oxygen as you can get, then you should probably not continue the 100% oxygen, even though their SAT is like 75%.
1: That is one of those issues that as an eMERGE physician is always difficult to get your mind around, right? You're sitting there. It's just like just to take a little off, but when we did neonatal resuscitation, when I trained, we wanted everybody at 100% as quickly as possible. Now the new courses that suggest neonatal resuscitation give you a timeline as you move up, and you're happy with 90%. So the reality is that if it's truly a cardiac lesion, you're convinced of that, 100% oxygen is not necessarily going to be your friend. So you have to titrate kind of for effect. You want adequate oxygenation, right, because you're dealing with some acidosis and we want good oxygen delivery at the tissue level, but we have to fix the overlying mechanical obstructive issue, which is really what's our problem here, right? So if we don't fix that, giving all the oxygen is just going to alter pulmonary blood flow, maybe make our circumstance worse, and as a result of that, we have to be very deliberate in how we use oxygen.
0: So we've talked about the hyperoxia test. We've talked about the BP differentials, the 0 2 sat differentials, the pulse delay. Let's talk about ECG. Now, uh, I am the first to admit that I am no expert at reading pediatric ECGs, and I want to try and keep this as simple as possible for our listeners. My understanding is that if you can identify hypertrophy, left or right ventricular hypertrophy on a pediatric ECG that will give you at least a little bit of a clue that there's a possible ductal-dependent obstructive lesion. Is this true? And if it is, can you help our listeners by going through how to identify LVH and RVH on an infant ECG?
2: As far as RVH goes, one of the simplest things to look for is in lead V1, look for a positive T-wave after day of life seven. So if you have that one-week to two-week kid who's coming in unwell and we're worried about ductal-dependent lesion, we can look for signs of RVH with simply a positive T-wave.
0: Okay, that I can remember. So a positive T-wave in V1 after a week of life is is RVH, which might clue you in that there's a cardiac lesion there. Yes. Got
2: it, okay. And to help you remember... We always think about these persistent juvenile T-wave inversions. That means after one week of life, the T-wave should be inverted. So if after one week it's positive, RVH. The other things to look for are simply the same as what we would look for in an adult. An R and V1 that's greater than the 90th percentile for age or S in V6 greater than the 90th percentile for age. LVH to just exactly the opposite. So it's the S wave in V1 being large and the R wave in V6 being large. Now, I will take it a step further and really confuse the listeners. So if this seems too much for you, that would be a time to cover your ears. But RVH and LVH are only helpful in the context of the age of the child. So as a child goes from being a newborn, they're going to have high right-sided forces they're going to have a right axis deviation. That is 100% normal after you're born because your left heart was being a punk inside mom's womb. It wasn't really doing anything. You had all those shunts and holes to take care of everything from the placenta. Now, if you have RVH in a brand new baby, that is likely a left obstructive lesion, like a cohort, because that right ventricle had to push really hard to push blood across the PDA and over to the systemic side. LVH, however, in a newborn is likely a combination of small right-sided forces, so really having a hypoplastic maybe right side of the heart, and then we could take it a step further once we have that kind of seven-day-old to two-week infant, even older, and start looking more at RVH and LVH in the infant, not the neonate.
1: And that's a key point to remember, Anton. So when I teach this to my students, we're born as right ventricle dominant animals. Because in the uterus, the right ventricle is our systemic ventricle. bit confusing, but that's a reality. After birth, because of a lot of physiological changes that happen in the pulmonary circuit, the left ventricle soon becomes our dominant ventricle within seconds. But over time, that dominance exerts itself electrically by demonstrating more left ventricular forces. So you see that transition over time. So if you see a, le- a newborn with left-sided forces, that's bad automatically, right? So as soon as you see that, that's bad, just as the upright T-wave in V1 is bad, right? So there are certain things that are ominous as soon as you see them. They should point to certain types of disease processes.
0: Okay. so. Let me just get it straight. So L V H at any time is bad. Uh, uh yeah, I guess in reality. Yeah, yeah. in reality. <laughs> that's yeah. true. That's yeah, a really true. good way to yeah. break it down. Good way to it down. And and RVH is bad after a week of life because you'd expect them to
1: have right dominant forces at birth. Yeah, I might go a little longer than a week of age because the transition occurs over the first three months if you really look at the way the graph changes. So persistent RVH after a month of age would definitely be something to consider as an abnormal cardiac disease finding. Let's talk about blood tests. So Dr. Joubert, what would you be
0: ordering on this kid who comes in with cyanosis in general? You know, we talked about our differential. So we're going to want to sort of cover the, some of those things in our blood tests. But what are really the key important blood tests that we should be looking out for?
1: The reality is every baby who comes into the emergency department with any type of disease, and I want to emphasize this to our listeners, should have a glucose automatically. The number of hypoglycemic kids who can come in looking a little gray and modeled, it's amazing. And it's a simple remedy. And you've become a curative with one little injection of some glucose so remember the glucose remember again high on our differential in equal numbers as you so rightly pointed out at the beginning of our broadcast Anton is that sepsis so with sepsis you got to do a septic workup and in fact there are many cardiac babies who get antibiotics as part of their cardiac medication for a better reason just because they look sick right it's part of your ABCs A stands for airway and antibiotics then the other thing that you want to look at is, you know, you can do tests for methemoglobinemia. Every baby, again, we didn't talk about this earlier because it's not one of the big four, but metabolic diseases. So the kid who comes in with some metabolic diseases, they will have hyperammonemia. So you should get an ammonia. And the reason for the lights, again, are to whirl out things like congenital adrenal hypoplasia, which can appear sometimes in the early in the baby's life and look like a congenital disease. And then you can send TSH off. There is an additional blood test, and again, in Canada, it's not readily available in any of our institutions, I don't know, but maybe Ashley can tell us what the U.S. experience is, but there's something called BNP, which has been demonstrated in the past to be utilized in adults for congestive heart failure versus respiratory cause, and there is some literature around pediatrics about looking at cardiac versus respiratory causes.
0: So let's get back to the case. We've got this four-day-old with respiratory distress and obvious central side His arterial blood gas shows a severe hypoxemia with metabolic acidosis. You initially suspect congenital pneumonia, but then you notice that his chest x-ray shows clear black lung fields. So Dr. Joubert, what would be the most likely diagnosis with clear black lung fields in a kid like this? And how are you going to actually manage this patient now?
1: Well, whenever you see clear, dark lung field, you get very worried because this is classic for a right flow obstructive lesion, whether it's pulmonary atresia, tetralogy of flow, severe tetralogy of flow, and many of the other lesions that can occur on the right side, tricuspid atresia, et cetera, et cetera. So when you see that, that's bad. You never want to see that. So automatically, the first thing you really need to be thinking about is how can I restore some degree of pulmonary blood flow? and the important way to restore that pulmonary blood flow is to use a medication called prostaglandin. As soon as you see that, you should be asking your nurse, and actually, if you're thinking about and you have this gray baby undifferentiated at three days of age, cardiac should be high on your list with sepsis. You may have already asked for the PG to be brought to the bedside because depending on your institution, maybe may be pre Some institutions actually have to mix it up, so you have to have that there. And then you start the prostaglandin at between 05 and one mic per kilo per minute. And it's important to start. Remember, you don't get a response. You may need to increase that drug dose up significantly to about four or five mics per kilo per minute. But like everything in medicine, there's a cost and a risk associated with prostaglandin, and that cost is apnea and hypotension. So you got to be prepared to treat that so you should have airway skills, at least a bag and mass at the bedside, and the ability to intubate or at least the laryngeal mass available if you don't have that skill
2: set for that baby. Life-saving <laughs> medication, but have the ventilator at the bedside. It can happen at any time. Never walk away from a neonate on prostaglandin.
0: Let's say we've started the prostaglandin infusion on this kid who now has a pretty obvious obstructive right ductal-dependent lesion, what kind of fluids do we want to be using for a kid like this?
2: So as you would with any septic child, you want to start with a normal saline bolus. Well, when we think about a septic child, we think about 20 cc's per kilo. When you have this very young neonate, it is a good idea to be judicious about your fluids and use about 10 cc's per kilo, at least to start out and see how you get for response. Oxygen, easily titratable, right? You can just take it off the kid if their respiratory status gets worse with oxygen. But you can't take back those fluids once they're given. So start slow, low, and then move on from there.
0: Okay, so I'm just thinking, if you're thinking more that this is sepsis, you're giving 20 cc's per kilogram, repeating maybe up to 60 or 80 cc's per kilogram. But if you're thinking more that this could be a cardiac lesion, you really want to be a lot more judicious,
1: not only with your fluids, but as we were saying before, with your oxygen as well. And the important thing here is when you're examining the child, they've got hepatomegaly. That's the indicator that, you know, fluids aren't probably going to make a huge difference in this particular case. They're important, but they're not going to do the turnaround that you see in the septic child. Okay. So for this
0: duct-dependent lesion kid, really it's the prostaglandins. Be judicious with your fluids. Be judicious with your oxygen. Let's say their acidosis is like scary, severe.
1: Dr. Joubert, is there any role for sodium bicarb in these kids? Oh, the great sodium bicarb debate. We could do a whole podcast on that alone. You know, there are individuals who really firmly believe that the use of sodium bicarb does have its role, but it's imperative to remember that it only has a role in the properly ventilated infant. So if you've got no pulmonary blood flow... Probably not the drug I would turn to because it's going to increase your acidosis as time goes on, as bicarb gets broken down into CO2. So just something to think about. So in the pre-arrest situation, yeah, there was an excellent review by Levine some years ago looking at bicarb utilization and all of our pediatric resuscitations. And his sort of analysis was probably doesn't make a big difference. So I personally don't use bicarb. I know what Ashley does, you know, and especially in a neonate, you're dealing with hyperosmotic concentrations and the issues associated with hyperosmolality and potential CNS side effects. Again, I'm not a big bicarb believer.
2: You know, I have to agree. I'm more of a let's fix the problem. So if you're acidotic, it's potentially in a child most likely going to be from hypoxemia because the most common cause of trouble is respiratory, but also a perfusion problem. So if you're not perfusing, you're probably going to be acidotic. That being said, profound acidosis does not help these children or their cardiac status. And so a trial of bicarb may be beneficial.
0: So suffice to say for the community practicing emergency physician, that decision is probably left best to the intensivist.
2: Yeah. And certainly don't prioritize it over other things.
0: I just really want to concentrate on the prostaglandins, you know, because in this sort of case, this is going to be really the key thing that can save this kid's life. What are the indications for prostaglandins in general in infants? You know, this kid had a probable right obstructive ductal dependent lesion, was four days old. When in general should we be thinking about pulling out those prostaglandins early?
2: In my mind, you have to have a pretty good reason in a shocky neonate not to start it. It's like not starting antibiotics.
0: So would it be reasonable to say then for any shocky or cyanotic neonate that you'd give antibiotics and prostaglandins pretty much on spec?
2: Pretty much I would ask for them. Get them to the bedside once you've gone through your toolkit of your physical exam, your upper and your lower blood pressures, your upper and lower SATs. You get your chest x ray while you're getting the prostas, and you have a little bit better idea as to are they blue with black lungs? Well, yeah, that sounds like prostaglandin needs to be started. And then you're going to go ahead and do your ultrasound, maybe your EKG as well. And if you have what appears to be, you know, a hypoplastic left heart, or just a heart that's really working hard, probably to overcome a left obstructive lesion, I would go ahead and start prostaglandins in that case too. In these neonates, when they're this sick, it's a good thing to start because it's often going to be life-saving.
0: All right. I just love, Dr. Strobel, how you say prostas. It's kind of got like this (laughs) rap thing going. It's awesome.
2: I need to pull out some Minnesota on you guys. Yeah, there, hey. Oh, don't you know, I go out in my boat.
0: That sounds awfully Canadian, actually.
2: Well, we're your neighbors.
0: (laughs) All right, on to case number two. This is our gray baby in shock. We have a one week old term neonate who was well at birth and discharged on day two, who presents to your ED in respiratory distress with vomiting and the inability to feed for one whole day. He appears gray and irritable and is tachycardic at 180 beats per minute and has poor peripheral perfusion. His brachial pulses are easily felt, but lower limb pulses are absent. The nurse is having trouble getting a blood pressure and getting an IV. So Dr. Strobel, using our brilliant age, color test approach again, What are your thoughts in this case so far, and how are you going to go through our little algorithm that we're building here?
2: So this is a one-week-old term neonate. So that's a child less than two weeks. If you want to extend it out, less than a month. So likely to be a ductal-dependent lesion. At the same time, he appears gray. So this is a gray baby. You're thinking circulatory collapse. So, if you combine ductal dependent lesion based on the age and circulatory collapse based on the gray color, you're likely to find yourself with a left sided obstructive lesion.
0: So, yeah, we've got no femoral pulses, baby's gray. Uh, We've gone through our age thing. We've gone through our color now. We're thinking maybe a ductal dependent left sided obstructive lesion. Whereas in the first case, we were trying to distinguish between a respiratory and a cardiac cause. In this case, it's with a gray baby who's in circulatory collapse. We're trying to distinguish more between sepsis and a cardiac cause. How do you distinguish between sepsis and congenital heart disease in cases like this one? I mean, I know we just finished saying that we're going to treat with antibiotics on spec, anyhow, but it would be nice to know early on whether we're dealing with sepsis or congenital heart disease. What are some of the clues that can lead us
1: one way or the other? Again, this is a very important question. And in a real sense, even in tertiary care centers, I know that kids have come in, presumed septic, got intubated, ventilated, And sent to the unit only to succumb to their disease because somebody failed to consider left sided obstructive lesions. So, you know, we can say, oh, yeah, you know, sepsis is everything, but you got to keep it in the back of your mind. So, again, there are some physical clues, right? So, children who have left sided obstructive lesions, and the reason they run into trouble is they're critical lesions and they're duct dependent. So, as that duct closes, the blood flow to the lower aorta is compromised. And as a result of that, all that part of the body that gets blood flow. Post ductal is now becoming acidemic from low flow state. So the reality is you're going to detect that in the clinical sense by again feeling the femoral arteries. And that goes back to Ashley's point. Feel every femoral you can because, you know, some are hard to find. You know, the babies are little contracted creatures that don't like to straighten out their legs. So sometimes it's hard to find, but feel everyone you can because when it comes to a critical time like this, you want to be able to put your finger on the femoral artery and say yes, yay, or nay. And if it's nay, that's highly suggestive of obstructive left-sided lesion. You can also use our pulse differential that we did from a blood pressure. And we already know in this case, they can't find a blood pressure on the lower extremity. That's not a good thing either, right? That suggests that there's something between that left ventricle and down there to the femoral artery that's not allowing flow to get through. So again, those are two really, really important components. And again, you know, if there is a really bad obstructive lesion to the left side, we used to have this concept when I was a very young resident of backward and forward failure that people abandoned long ago. But it's a nice way to think of it. With backward failure, eventually you will get signs of a patomegaly and you will have tachypnea. And so again, if you feel no femoral pulses in a big liver, that's not sepsis, that's cardiac.
0: So this neonate did have discrepant pulses and blood pressures and was assumed to have a left obstructive duct-dependent lesion. So Dr. Strobel, how would you manage this patient now that you've got this information in front of you?
2: Well, we already emphasized that if you see a sick neonate, prostaglandins should be requested. And prostaglandins would be a great next step in this kiddo. Uh, From there, obviously, they're gray. They have poor perfusion. They need some volume resuscitation. But instead of doing 20 cc's per kilo, I think wise in a neonate to start with 10 cc's per kilo and then go from there with additional boluses. Obviously, if they're gray, they probably aren't perfusing well. A little bit of oxygen may not be harmful in this child. And so if you presume that they're sepsis and you do all the normal sepsis things of oxygen and volume expansion, you're probably going to be okay can always take off the oxygen if the kiddo seems to be doing worse. Lastly, you have to look with focus and look at the heart. These kiddos probably are going to need a little bit of support. We had a very young infant here who ended up diagnosed as a coarctation, had all of the same features, had the absent lower extremity pulses, had a somewhat hazy x-ray, but cardiomegaly was gray-looking and unwell and tachypnic and tachycardic, the differentiator was the kiddo had hepatomegaly. And so they were already at the point where their heart had kind of remodeled to overcome the stenosis on the left side of the coarct. And so with POCUS, the look at the heart showed a very dilated four-chamber heart that was working hard to contract but wasn't doing a very good job. And so getting some epi on board for that kiddo or milrinone to kind of decrease your systemic vascular resistance and help overcome that obstruction would be very helpful early in the case in this kiddo.
0: Wow. So I love the simplicity of this so far. You know, in our first case and our second case, really it's all about getting those prostaglandins in early, we want to give fluids, but be judicious, you know, more so in this case than the other case, perhaps. And oxygen we want to be thinking about, but also be judicious. And you should be considering if the kitty's not doing well, vasopressors as well. And one of the first things I would do with a child like this is get a pediatric intensivist on the phone and start initiating transportation like as I'm resuscitating the kid.
1: Absolutely. And it's an important component not to forget.
2: And a pediatric cardiologist can be extremely helpful as well. So if you're not sure who to call first, call them both and get whoever you can on the line.
0: Let's say it's 3 a.m. and you don't have an anesthetist or a pediatric intensivist to help you. And you decide for whatever reason that this gray baby really needs to be intubated. What are some of the pearls and pitfalls when it comes to intubation and mechanical ventilation in these critical kids with with congenital heart disease?
2: Well, we've talked about hemodynamics and asking your intensivist to help you uh, with hemodynamics because each kiddo presents differently and has different physiology with each lesion, which is why it is not important to know the lesion. It's only important to know how the kiddo is doing in front of you clinically. And so... You don't want to upset that balance, that teeter totter very much. And so, Atomidate is a nice option to go to in order to keep your hemodynamics as neutral as possible because you're about to put this kiddo on positive pressure ventilation.
0: I think that's an important point just to reiterate there because, generally speaking, every time I've even thought about intubating a child, it's always, always been ketamine, 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 ketamine. So, uh, I think it's worth reiterating that. In this case, this is a good exception to the sort of ketamine for everyone rule, and you might want to use something like Atomidate for its hemodynamic profile.
2: Exactly. Ketamine could be uh, disastrous in this kiddo because if it is a left obstructive lesion, you're just going to increase your systemic vascular resistance more, therefore increasing your obstruction more. And if the kiddo needs more time to fill the heart, you're gonna have this worsening tachycardia and you just might not get that preload to move forward.
1: We probably all know of some place or someone who's had the misfortune using ketamine in one of these children to have them go on to a rest almost immediately. And that's what we want to avoid. The ketamine is nice drug, but not the place to have on this particular shelf. Sometimes in these particular conditions, I've used fentanyl as my sole agent. How did I know you were going to say that? (laughs) Old men know a lot of old things. (laughs) (laughs) And fentanyl, you know, in a range of about five to six mics per kilo, is a really, really good induction agent if you really need to use one. So if you don't have autonomy, you need to have something to back it up. And like I said, my second go-to would be fentanyl because almost every eMERGE I can think of has fentanyl.
0: Great. Okay. So first line, etomidate. If you don't have that, fentanyl. Now, what about positive pressure ventilation in these kids? In Canada, we're lucky enough to have really, really great respiratory therapists. And I understand that in the United States, it's more incumbent upon the emergency physician to be doing the vent settings and such. For our international audience, what can you tell us about positive pressure ventilation in these kiddies with congenital heart disease?
2: Neither of us really want to take this question uh, because it just changes that entire teeter-totter balance that we started out talking about. As soon as you provide positive pressure, you are now going to decrease your preload. And we were just giving normal saline boluses because some of these lesions require that preload. And you have a really sick acidemic kiddo who is not perfusing well. So your balance is going to be distorted. And the biggest thing that I would say is when you start the positive pressure ventilation, I would choose a PEEP that is quite low, like three. You always think of five kind of to start out things, but you can do three and still overcome most of your airway resistance in these very young babies. And um, I think that that's a good starting spot. And then also making sure that you have some probably epi or milrinone, at least being run from the pharmacy or draw it up and mix it yourself. That can be a huge spot for a medication error. So I can't really advocate that, but at least having some hemodynamic support in your pocket as you're pushing your atomidate or your fentanyl for the induction.
0: What oxygen saturation are you titrating to in these congenital heart disease kids?
2: In my mind, because I'm a simplistic person, but don't have a cardiology background like Dr. Javert, but I would say 85, you can never go wrong.
0: (laughs) Wow. So that's a big deal for me. I can't imagine standing there in this resuscitation room, sweating, looking at the monitor, seeing an O2 sat of 85% and thinking that's exactly where I want it to be.
1: And, you know, it's so lesion-dependent because some of these kids, once you open the vascular tree up and you start prostaglandins, their sats might climb up into the 90s, and that's fine. You know, you can't give them an FIO2 of 15% because you're at 90, so don't do that. But, I mean, the reality is you want to be close to that flat part of the curve as you can get to. 85 isn't quite there. We all know it's at 90, but if you're closer, if you're at 70, you're a long way off, Right. If you're at 85, you're going to probably be doing pretty well. And remember as well, we have the advantage in neonates of a fetal hemoglobin. And fetal hemoglobin has much different properties associated with oxygen affinity. So although you and I at 85 might not really like that, our brains would really be unhappy, a baby might say, hey, that's not too bad. It's better than it was where it just came from. So you have to think about the physiology that's associated with being a newborn.
2: You could definitely check the SATs, but you could check your differential SATs more so. So if you're worried about ductal-dependent lesion, and especially a left obstructive ductal-dependent lesion, if your SATs start going from high in the right upper extremity and low in the right lower extremity and start matching each other, well, then you're accomplishing the goal. And I think it's a lot easier to get a SAT on a kiddo than a blood pressure because we know the automated cuffs aren't that great. You might not have the right size, but the SAT, you're always gonna have a SAT probe. And so if you can start to get those to match a little bit better, you're probably winning.
0: Awesome. On to case number three, entitled Is This Bronchiolitis? The Pink Baby. An eight-week-old infant presents to your ED with two days of cough and congestion. According to parents, that day she was breathing more quickly than usual, sucking in her chest, and having a hard time feeding. They report no fever, vomiting, or diarrhea. Her three-year-old sibling has a URTI. On exam, she's afebrile with a heart rate of 160, a respiratory rate of 70, a blood pressure of 80 over 50, and an oxygen saturation of 90%. The triage nurse describes an alert infant with nasal congestion and respiratory distress, moderate in drawing and retractions, and a wheezy chest. So, Dr. Jabert,
1: what are your thoughts in terms of the differential diagnosis in this child, and how are you going to sort it out? Well, I think it's imperative when you're thinking about the wheezy child not to get just focused on the respiratory tract. I think as clinicians, we always go for what's quick and easy and in front of us, and that's a disaster for a child who has congenital heart disease. So again, not all that wheezes is asthma. Not all that wheezes in a young infant is bronchiolitis. Just a couple of thoughts to keep in the back of your mind. Again, when you're going to look at this child, there's a couple of things you got to be looking at again, right? you got to look at how the baby is breathing. Is this extreme effort or is this effortless breathing? That may be or may not be helpful to you. Physical examination, again, we're talking about a pink child, right? Sats we expect will be in the upper 90s or greater, right? Which, again, doesn't really help to separate out between respiratory and non-respiratory and the vast majority of kids with bronchiolitis and congenital heart disease. But you want to feel for that liver. Remember, tachypnea, hepatomegaly is equal to congestive heart failure. But more importantly here, it's not just how far below the cost of margin that liver is because in reality with bronchiolitis in the hyperinflated state, That liver might, in fact, be much lower than it would normally be, but it's that span. And once again, going back to that old IPPA, you know, percussion, really an important component here. Then you want to take a little history with regard to this baby. So babies who have congestive heart failure get there very slowly. It's like your diabetic who goes into DKA. They don't one day wake up and they're in heart failure. They get there because the pulmonary vascular resistance is dropping and the degree of left-to-right shunting increases. As a result of that extra blood flow going through the pulmonary circuit again, they develop what I call congested lungs or heavy lungs. And the analogy I used to use in cardiology is if you think of the lungs as sponges, The more water you put in a sponge, the heavier it gets. Same thing here. The more blood you put through the lungs, the heavier they get. So the work of breathing starts to increase. Work of breathing becomes their sole thing. So feeding starts to drop, or if they're feeding even reasonably well, they're often diaphoretic because the work of feeding combined with the work of breathing goes up and they don't gain weight because they're using all their caloric expenditure to move these big, heavy sacks of fluid.
0: Okay. So the sweaty, poorly feeding, child with hepatomegaly and no good weight gain in a wheezy kid, you don't want to just be thinking about the usual respiratory causes. This is when you might want to be thinking of congestive heart failure in the neonate. Absolutely.
1: And as you go forward, right, you'll get more history, but then you have your clinical exam to add on to it. And you know, many of the kids who have left to right shunt lesions will have a cardiac murmur. So you're going to auscultate. Again, you're going to feel femorals because femorals are gold. Are they big, bounding, leaping pulses? Are they diminished pulses? Most kids with congestive heart failure have normal or bounding pulses. You're going to listen. The precordium is often dynamic. The left ventricle is a little bit displaced over to the left, depending on the age of the child. When you auscultate, you're going to hear something, and the vast majority of these, and it can be anything from a pansystolic, harsh murmur to a continuous murmur. And you know, even the worst of us can often hear something in the chest if we focus and concentrate. The real take-home point there is you really need that cognitive forcing
0: strategy of wheezy child force yourself to think about congestive heart failure in the neonate. It's not always respiratory. Now, what about in terms of trying to figure out what the cause of their CHF is? You know, in adults, we think about coronary ischemia and salt overload and hypertension, dysrhythmias, myocarditis. We reviewed all this stuff way back in episode four. Dr. Strobel, what are some of the more common causes of CHF in the pediatric population?
2: So the more common causes are going to be that those holes from intrautero are still open. So we're talking about the VSDs, the ASDs. Um, you could have a structural problem called L-kappa, which stands for anomalous left coronary off the pulmonary artery. And so that kind of presents sort of like a STEMI would. It's essentially deoxygenated blood going out your left main to the heart. And so those are that's another structural cause Certainly aortic stenosis to an extent of PDA that's persistent could give this non-cardiac causes that are not structural per se, but do come from the heart. We talked about SVT with a cardiogenic shock, certain EV blocks and a cardiomyopathy could or myocarditis when you start to talk about kind of an older kiddo, maybe not so young, but towards the six month to one year age range.
0: Now let's go back, Dr. Strobel, to the amazing algorithm, the age color tests approach for congenital heart disease. How would this case fit into your age color tests approach?
2: So we have an eight week old. And so that child is over a month of age. So less likely, but not zero to be a ductal dependent lesion. Typically, these are going to be uh, more of your shunting problems. And you certainly could have a cyanotic kiddo with a shunting problem. But in this case, this kiddo appears pink. Their sats are 90%. They definitely have increased work of breathing, but are perfusing based on the description of the kiddo. So a pink kiddo would make me again think shunting. So age greater than one month, probably a shunting lesion, pink baby shunting, and so adequately perfused, but just having to work harder to breathe. I think as far as tests go, I really like the EKG in these kiddos. We talked about structural causes like VSD, ASD. You could try the hyperoxia test because the SATs are in the 90s. You probably will find that this kiddo gets more tachypnic, but the SATs may or may not come up just because of the shunting. You can do your blood pressures upper and lower. You can do your SATs upper and lower. You probably won't notice much of a difference in these kiddos, but your chest x-ray will also be quite diagnostic. Maybe it will look white. Well, then you would expect that this is bronchiolitis. You know, it might even get red as a, a viral interstitial pattern, or potentially someone may say, Oh, this is concerning for pneumonia. So it's not that diagnostic. And that's where POCUS can probably be helpful, or probably one of the few scenarios where that BNP may, in fact, be helpful for the next guy.
0: All right, I just want to concentrate a little bit more on the chest x ray. We had mentioned one of the previous cases that black lungs should raise the red flag for a right obstructive ductal-dependent lesion. Let's talk a little bit more about
1: what the chest x-ray can do for us with these kids. We all learned in medical school those, you know, three or four classic examples. You know, the egg on the string, which represents transposition of the great arteries, the boot-shaped heart, Tetralogy of Fallot, the snowman, which represents total anomalous pulmonary venous return. So there are some, I want to use the term, classic X ray patterns that you may see that are going to say, oh, wow, this guy's got, you know, total anomalous pulmonary venous return. That's why he's in congestive heart failure. The other components that are really important to look at, though, is look at the heart size. So the vast majority of children who have left to right shunting actually have cardiomegaly and that cardiomegaly will get larger with time and it can be depending on what type of left to right shunting or where the location is it determines what chamber will be affected. So this is where despite the debate whether a lateral chest x-ray is a value or not of value this is where a lateral chest x-ray may be very useful. So in left ventricular failure, we find that the apex gets a little upturned. The heart size gets a little bit when we've got something like a VSD. Apex gets upturned a little bit of gross cardiac enlargement compared to the thoracic ratio. We always teach the CT ratio. So in young children, a CT ratio of less than 0.5 or or 4.5, depending which author you want to look at, is fine when you get above that that is abnormal. So as soon as you see something greater than 0.5, there's got to be something wrong there. The other thing is we've talked about the left ventricle, a little upturned apex on it instead of pointing down towards the diaphragm. The other thing you can do is you look at the lateral. For ASDs as an example, you'll see, you know, that retrosternal space above the heart should be fairly dark, but with an ASD, your right ventricle gets a little bit large. Again, that fills that particular space. The other two things you can look at is you can look at the aortic arch. So the aortic arch should always be on the left side. But in people with Tetralogy of Fallot, it tends to be more often on the right side. So if the right side of the trachea has got an uretic arch, you may be dealing with a tetralogy flow. And some of the truncuses can give you that kind of appearance as well. And then the final thing you really want to look at is the uh, distribution of the extra white, as Dr. Felder has pointed out so, so nicely, right, that fluffy pattern which we talk about. So again, if it's a generalized diffuse the lower, that's probably congestive heart failure associated with that. Sometimes you see what's called the butterfly pattern, which suggests an obstruction obstructive process going to the left side. So you got to think of things like some aortic stenosis or venous vein obstruction going on. Sometimes you see it in total anomalous pulmonary venous return. So there are some little indicators on the x-ray, but heart size is number one. Pulmonary vascularity is number two. What side your aortic or charge is is number three, aside from those classic patterns that we've learned in medical school.
0: Great. Well, next time I have a kitty like this, I'm going to text you The chest (laughs) x-ray. Sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we'll review all those great tips and pearls um, in the written summary. Let's get on to how you treat this patient. So we've got this eight-week-old infant, respiratory distress, O2 sat 90%. You've done this chest x-ray, and let's say it shows pulmonary edema. How would you manage this child with CHF? And in particular, how is the management different to adults?
2: So some things are similar to adults. Ferrosamide definitely has a role with infants, and the dose is quite simple, about one meg per keg. Oxygen. We mentioned that it's a potent pulmonary vasodilator. So if you already have good blood flow to the lungs based on your white chest x-ray, probably supplemental oxygen, even though their SATs are at 90%, is not going to be particularly helpful in this kiddo and could worsen your hypoxemia, in fact. So being okay with that number in front of you because you're seeing the patient and how they're doing.
0: Wow. Again, so you've got a kid with congestive heart failure, sat 90%, and you don't necessarily want to give oxygen.
2: It's true. It'll dilate those pulmonary beds and it'll essentially decrease your PVR even more and increase that left to right shunting Milrinone is a wonderful adjunct in these CHF kiddos, especially in the acute setting as we're trying to bridge them to what the next therapy is going to be, whether it's an interventional procedure like a patch or whether it's a bigger surgery to repair that lesion.
0: So we've gone through three cases, a right ductal dependent lesion, a left ductal dependent lesion, and the pink baby with congestive heart failure. And I don't know about the listeners out there, but I can tell you that I learned an enormous amount because this was a topic that I really didn't feel strong on. So thank you so much, Dr. Strobel and Dr. Joubert, for all your great learning pearls and tips and all your wisdom. It
1: was just fantastic.
2: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, my pleasure as well, Anton. And it's great to be working with Dr. Strobel. Who wrote an excellent paper. Everybody should read it. It's really easily and nicely laid out.
0: We'll have that on the website Great. for
1: sure.